If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to a couple different places, actually. Colossians, Ephesians, and 1 Peter. Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, and 1 Peter chapter 3. Once again, that's Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5, and 1 Peter chapter 3. For those of you not familiar with the Bible, those are all on the right side of the Bible, uh, towards the back. They're very small uh, letters, and so they're only a few pages in length, so they're a little hard to find, but you have plenty of time to find them. Uh, Colossians is where we're going to begin. If you've not been with us in the past few weeks, or if this is your first time visiting, we're taking the book of Colossians. It was a letter written to a church, just like this church in a lot of ways, many years ago, uh, in, in what is modern-day Turkey, actually, about 2,000 years ago, inspired by Paul, or inspired by God, written by Paul, uh, to this church. And they were dealing with a lot of things. They were dealing primarily with the idea of what it took to really grow in Christ. How do we mature in our faith? And there were some individuals in the church that were suggesting that they integrate mysticism into Christianity. And others were, were advocating going back to the Old Testament laws. And how is it, uh, does that integrate? And the Apostle Paul says it doesn't. And he lays out for us, especially in chapter 3, what it really means to grow in Christ. And it, and, it, and it has very little to do with going places. We're glad you're here this morning. We hope you get involved more. Uh, a lot of the church is about loving one another, admonishing one another, building one another up. But at some point, there's this personal walk with God that is how you grow. It's how you change. And there are some decisions to be made. And so if you found Colossians, let's begin with some context here. In Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read just the first four verses to give you some context. Uh, Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, in other words, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. So right off the bat, you realize this is a mindset. This is a change, an internal decision that you have to make. But what does it mean to seek the things that are above and to set your mind on the things that are above? That's, that's kind of hard because we live in this world. And he, he begins to elaborate on that, and he begins with verse 3. He says, For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So it has to start with this realization that you're no longer living for the things of this world right off the bat. You, you can't live in two different places at once. It's an either or, not a both and. And that's extraordinarily difficult when every day you have to get up, go to work, come home, eat, uh, do your things around the house, go to bed, and start again. It's incredibly hard. But he then begins to lay out what this looks like. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he begins with the idea of death, but at the same time, the idea of someday the payoff is going to be eternal. That this world is more than just what you see. And then he begins getting very specific, putting off, and, and he gets so uh, dramatic and so emphatic. He uses the word death. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he, he lays out all these things. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize that growth in Christ isn't just going places and doing things. It's this decision 
And it's a very hard decision. In fact, the Bible describes it as spiritual warfare, to put to death certain things in your heart. And then he goes on in verse 12. Let's drop down to verse 12. And he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In other words, you have a purpose. You are chosen by God to be holy, set apart, his people, and you are loved. He says, as that Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and to which indeed you are called in one body. This idea of this togetherness, this oneness of the church, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the word of Christ isn't just something that you read or study. It dwells in you, and you, are, you use that to change not only you but one another with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. So there's this fullness of God in everything that you do, in word or deed, is being directed to God because you are no longer concerned about the things of this world. That's the foundation. Now, the question is this. When you were young, or maybe you're young now, and you were thinking about getting married, was that on your heart as your future husband or wife came into the room the very first time you saw them? Were you thinking about all that, or were you thinking like, oh my. <laughs> Praise Jesus, right? Yeah, so it's this craziness. The idea... Uh, that we're doing all that and then we're living in this world and one of the things in our hearts often is we're looking for a spouse. We're looking to get married. And that tends to overrule about everything that's going on in our hearts at that moment in time. And because of that, marriages often start out poorly. The statistics vary all over the board. I've looked up statistics, and I can tell you the divorce rate in America is anywhere between 40% to 60%, depending upon which study you look at. Within Christianity, again, you see all sorts of rates and statistics, but the, the thing that they're saying these days is the problem with those statistics, why they're not as trustworthy as even they once were, however much that was, is because people just quit getting married lately. They're just living together. Uh, they've given up on marriage a lot of the times. And so the reality is this marriage issue that so many people are either looking to or looking back or looking forward to is hard. And the Bible has a lot to speak about it. And we're going to focus on two verses, but in order to understand these verses, we're going to look at those other passages of Scripture that I talked to you about, Ephesians and First Peter. So I want to encourage you to have those ready but the context is this. Let's look at verses 18 through 25. Point number one is real simple. Our relationships are for the Lord. They're not for ourselves. Verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So in, in the future weeks, uh, in the coming days, we're going to be looking at these other relationships, children, parents, uh, the worst working relationship you can possibly have, that of masters and slaves or bondservants. And so scripture begins uh, starting with wives and husbands, but the context is this. Everything that we're going to be discussing is grounded in the Lord. It's all about him. It's for his glory. It's for his honor. It's for him and him alone. So the context that we read earlier about we have died and our life is hidden with Christ. We are now all about Jesus. That plays out in our relationships. But once again, does it start that way? Does it even begin like on your first date if you were dating? Some of you have, have set that aside, probably a wise thing to do because you don't see that in Scripture and it's quite frankly crazy the way we do it. We, we go out and dating in this world is about getting dressed up, putting your best foot forward, having this fake sort of scenario in which you meet the other and, and you talk about silly stuff that's really not that important and you're all worried about yourself. Do they like me? Are they attracted to me? It's all self-centered. And that's how often relationships begin. Or in the case of Christians, uh, it actually gets a little bit worse. We lie to one another, right? I can't tell you the number of young couples that have come to me and, and they're asking, you know, hey, Scott, will you marry me? And I'm saying, great, uh, is your spouse, is this, is this man you're considering marrying, is he a Christian? And they they kind of get quiet. They go, he owns a Bible. Uh, he went to church as a kid. Uh, his parents go to church. Uh, someday, he, he said he honestly, he would come to church here. I mean, they're looking at this like they're trying to squeeze their, their love of their life into somehow fitting into Jesus, right? They're doing their best. Is that really the wisest decision? What I've discovered time and time again we are completely focused on the horizontal in our relationships. Either it's about the other person or about yourself. Rather than on the vertical of how can I worship God? Is this relationship, whatever relationship, husband, wife, children, whatever the case, is this really about the Lord? It almost does not exist. In fact, it gets kind of scary. I was listening to one video this week, and, and one guy pointed out about women uh, choosing basically careers over getting married early, and he said, that's really foolish. And there was this a bunch of boos and hisses from the audience he was speaking to. He wasn't speaking to a lot of friendly people. And, and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, what is easier to find, a good man or a career? 
All the booze quieted. <laughs> they go, it's much wiser to look for a good man early and a career later because good people are hard to find. And so that really, you begin to get worried and anxious as a young person, and, and, and you start really pressing, trying to find this man or this woman. The question is, what is the biblical picture of marriage? Well, right off the bat, you have to know this relationship is founded in the Lord. Point number two is this. When we're talking about this passage of Scripture, let's look at verse 18 and 19. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The second point is this. We're talking about husbands and wives, not men and women. Not at all. I once had to teach this uh, in seminary. I had a, a buddy of mine. We were choosing passages for one another on the, the, the scripture that we had to teach in class. And naturally, uh, my buddy uh, was kind of a jerk, so I gave him a rough passage. And uh, he, was, he was nice, but I was kind of being mean. I was probably the jerk. And he gave me this passage. He goes, yeah, not only this, but I want you to teach this to all the ladies of uh, the future pastors. Wives, submit to your husbands. And uh, I was like, great, because I, I ran this verse across uh, a few ladies, and they're like, you know what the picture is? This is the picture we have in our mind, Scott, when we hear this verse. We think of the 1800s, and I'm like, okay, I get that. I, I like history. And we think of the 1800s, and we think of this guy going out and taking one of those oxen yokes and putting it on his wife. And not only that, but behind the oxen yoke, he puts this plow. And rather than the horse, he's thinking his wife is going to pull this heavy yoke and begin plowing the field as he sits in a chair drinking iced tea. That's what we think of when we, we read this verse of wives submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. We think of this overbearing jerk of a guy making his wife do all kinds of crazy things if, as if she's a slave or if she's some farm animal. I'm like, all right, that's stupid, but I understand at least where you're coming from. God bless you. Now, here's the, the situation. You need to understand biblically, this isn't about men and women. Uh, there are many examples in Scripture, but just a couple here. Colossians 4, within this text, Colossians 4.15, Paul writes, Give my reading, uh, greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. Here's a lady who has her own house, and she's identified it as her house, and she has invited the church. She is the head of her house, and she's invited the church to come in. You see, in the biblical literature, women were oftentimes in leadership roles and headship roles in their own house. This does not apply to single women. This passage is, is directed to wives. It doesn't apply to widows. It doesn't apply to the divorced or, or whatever the case may be. This is about a role within a relationship. It has nothing to do with equality of people. The greatest example is Jesus Christ himself. He is God. He God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are one. They are equal. Yet Jesus humbled himself to submit to the will of the Father. 
It is a relational role. It is not about quality. Another passage in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul again is writing, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant or a deaconess of the church at Centuria, that you may welcome her in the Lord as a worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. We have another lady leading in ministry, doing all sorts of things, going from church to church, helping Paul and others. This is not about some sort of uh, horrible submission and inequality, none of that. This is just simply honoring the Lord in our relationships. And there are certain roles in those relationships God has defined. And in marriage, he has given the role of leadership to men. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But this isn't about men and women in general. This is about men and women within marriage, husbands and wives. Point number three is simply this. In marriage, in the marriage relationship, God commands wives to submit. What does it mean? Well, once again, we saw that the guardrails or the guidelines in submission is not the opinion of Scott. It is not the desires of Bob or Harry. It is not culture. It is the Lord. And, and what is the purpose here? I, I love what one passage or one writer says about this passage. Melek, in his um, commentary on this book, he says, Submission is a matter of Christian commitment. It comes with salvation. Voluntarily taking a, a position of submission in a matter of a wife's relationship to the Lord, not to her husband. It is fitting in the Lord. The form of the verb here even shows that submission is to be voluntary. I would suggest to you voluntary submission is the only kind of submission. It cannot be demanded. It cannot be requested. Husbands can't even request submission. If that's the case, it's no longer submission. It is the, the wife voluntarily submitting herself to the Lord in a role in which she chose. But how? How do we submit? Well, uh, Ephesians begins to point to this. I want to encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. How and why would a wife submit? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. And again, if you're not married today, if you're single, if you're widowed, this applies to you because you know someone that is married. You have family, you have friends, and if the statistics are right, they're more than likely having problems with their marriage. Even if someone has been married for 70 years, it doesn't mean they have a good marriage. It just means they're able to tolerate a lot of difficulties for a long time, maybe. There could be a lot of reasons they're married for a long time. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good. Ephesians 5, through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, the body, as himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives must submit in everything to their husbands. Well, how? Well, you submit as we submit to the Lord. Uh, 
today you're coming here and you're listening to me preach. And as the pastor, I'm the leader of this church. And you generally submit to me. But you don't submit to Scott's theology or Scott's opinions. You're just submitting to me because I'm charged with leading you in the Lord, in God's word. If I begin to lead you in a different way, you're no longer required to submit. In fact, you're commanded to do other than that. We see that with the apostles, with government, and, and various different situations they encountered in their life. You submit to those relationships in this world, but is never contrary to the word of God. So it is this submitting to their own husbands as to the Lord. Here's a, have you heard of this analogy when someone's talking about marriage? It's a partnership. Anyone ever heard of that? It's a partnership. Everyone's like, I don't know, should I raise my hand or should I not? Well, there's lots of analogies we could use in regards to marriage. We really could. And they, they might fit. You could, in your own mind, you could find some similarities and say, well, maybe marriage is like a partnership or maybe marriage is like this or that. I would encourage you to kick that one to the curb because it's never brought up in Scripture. The analogy of a marriage that is always brought up in Scripture is this, that of a church. The husband-wife relationship is the picture of Christ in his church. That's the image of a marriage. The question is this, when you began your marriage or your friends began theirs, is that the image they started with? And they're likely like, no, the thoughts in my mind were not something that you'd want to bring up in church, right? <laughs> Let's just be honest, right? Full of lustful thoughts that probably weren't very good. Or uh, a lot of the stuff that you did before your marriage, you were like, man, yeah, I'm not sure the Lord would really be pleased with that. That's the way it goes. Because quite frankly, what were our models growing up? Were we ever given this model of a marriage that is like Christ in, in the church? Likely not. It's just not taught in scripture or in church very much. But why? Why should wives submit? Well, it's because of headship, positional responsibility. Just as I spoke earlier, it's our responsibility to submit to Christ. And, and we submit to one another in the church as well. I have individuals in here that are great at building projects. And they always will come to me and say, Scott, let's, we need to get this done. I'm like, great. And then they begin asking my, my opinion. I'm like, wait a minute. When it comes to construction, I am labor. I am not management. Do not. No, I am submitting to you. You are in charge. And, and it's really hard for them, actually, because they, they've been around me so much in a role of leadership, and, and they keep asking me questions. I'm like, I'm leaving if you keep asking me questions. <laughs> no, I'm submitting to you, and it's a challenge, but once again, it's great because they're the expert. They have the responsibility. It's no longer on me. All I have to do is follow, and it's super easy if I have a great leader. And so this image of the church, us following Christ, that's the image that we're to submit to. He's given us his word, and you'll see how that's played out later. I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, going a little bit further, because this is a tough topic, submission, for anyone. 
1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 say this. Peter writes, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. Let's stop there for a second. You want to be in a tough spot? Wake up in the morning and realize you're committed and you've made a commitment to a person for all the days of your life, till death do you part. And that person, you realize for the very first time, even though you met them in church and they have a Bible and all these different things, whatever they say, you come to the realization that this person is lost as a goose in a snowstorm. And you're thinking, what do I do? I'm married to someone that does not even know the Lord. And I've committed to him the rest of my life. What do you do? Well, it goes back to that foundation, right? Relationships are for the Lord. We're to honor him. And in 1 Peter, he acknowledges this, whether it's an individual in that scenario that figures it out, or maybe there are two lost people who are married, and one comes to know the Lord, and they're like, I'm not just going to divorce my husband. I'm not supposed to do that, but what do I do? Well, this is what you're to do. It says, be subject to your own husband's, so that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they've heard the word, they refuse to obey it, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So here's the interesting thing. The picture is this. The husband rejects the word of God. The wife, even though it's the responsibility you're going to find out in just a minute, the responsibility is on the husband to take the word and to, to wash the wife with the water of the word. She instead chooses, you know what? I'm not going to be horrible and mean and, and rebellious against my husband. I'm going to submit to him and the Lord, and I'm going to take the word for myself, and I'm going to follow the word of the Lord, and in my actions, my husband who's rejected the word is going to see me live it out, and he will be one. He may be one. The Greek word there is often used in, in terms of finance, but it's often also used by the Apostle Paul to describe someone who is one to the Lord. How God uses you and your life to see someone come to eternal salvation. It's this beautiful picture of winning someone to the word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Respectful and pure is difficult when your leader is not respectful and not pure. But that's what we're commanded to do in this relationship as husband and wife. But once again, the warning here is this. Wives, you're never commanded to submit to a husband that wants you to do something that contradicts the word of God. It is you living out the word of God that he sees this pure conduct. Well, next point is this. Husbands, this is where it gets tough. And if you think it's tough or don't think it's tough, just try it. In the marriage relationship, God commands husbands to love. Now, that's real easy. It's like, yeah, I love my wife. I love her so much, I'm going to get a new four-wheeler. I'll take her on a ride. I'm going to love her so much that I'm going to take her on my bass boat. I'm going to love her so much that uh, I'm going to let her do my laundry. I'm going to love her so much that I'm going to let her watch the kids. As I, go out. I mean, there's all sorts of craziness on how we can define and twist love as husbands. 
Well, this is how you're to love your wives. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Once again, this imagery of church. And gave himself up for. Now let's stop. A lot of husbands I know read that passage and stop right there. And they're like, okay, I'll give myself up for my wife. And they dedicate 80 hours of their life to work. And they think, I'm sacrificing my life. And I'm going to send home the, the bacon. I'm going to write checks. I'm going to give my kids the best education. I'm going to give my wife the nicest house. I'm sacrificing my life for my wife. No, that's not it at all. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't come to die and sacrifice to make us rich with money. That wasn't his purpose. What was his purpose? You got to keep reading in verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what it means to be sacrificially loving your wife. It's this amazing picture. This morning we had a baptism here, and, and it, I get to do this once in a while, uh, but it's this picture not of this young couple in love and they're, they're beautiful and they're going around and enjoying this life, but it's a picture of maybe an older couple, maybe an older couple where his wife is not exactly healthy and she can't get around. I've seen it many times as a minister and a pastor, especially in issues of Alzheimer or dementia, and it's an older man taking care of his wife and he has to bathe her. And you would think, man, that's not exactly my idea of a fun Friday night. But it's the reality of real life as we grow old together. And it's this picture of this husband taking his wife and washing her gently, cleansing her, of humbly and loving in a very uh, difficult and potentially humiliating and, and just hard situation to find yourself in where this person that you loved is now having to take care of you and you have to do it with honor and gentleness and he's washing her that's the picture of a husband not doing it with water but with the word of God it's taking scripture and gently speaking in to the life of your wife and, and seeing her change, becoming this beautiful woman, even more beautiful than she once was, because beauty on the outside fades, but on the inside, all the, all the difficulty, the sins, and, and the problems that she's grown up with and experienced, that's your role, husbands, to love her and lead her in that. It's not going to work 60 hours a week and never seeing her, it's to spend quality, biblical time caring for her and sanctifying her in the Word of God. That's the love that God commands us to love our wives with. The question is this. Guys, have you ever seen that modeled? Once again, it's hard if you haven't seen it modeled. I would encourage you to just start very simply. Simple application of... 
hey, let's have a Bible study. You know, maybe even with the kids, if you've got kids, all right, once a week. And then as the kids go off to bed, you continue to talk about it. Or, hey, after dinner, could we do a devotion? Or this, in, in the early morning, you know, let's get together and have coffee before we go to work. Get up extra early, guys. Sacrifice. And have just a little bit of time, just real honest conversations about what God is doing in one another's life. And guys, here, once again, you cannot wash your wife with the water of the word if you don't have it hidden in your heart as We saw earlier in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Can't do it. But you can start at least in that scenario. You have to be brave enough to be a good leader to start. And it's hard. It really is. After 50 years of marriage, after 20 years of marriage, whatever the case is, to just begin that, But ladies, once again, if your husbands are willing to try that, I want to encourage you to submit to that attempt, at least, for a husband's, for your husband to to be the leader. And not everything he says, don't don't immediately go, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. (laughs) Just let him read the scriptures, all right? Just let him read. That's that's all you got to start with. He opened the Bible and he read. Good for him. Love your husbands. But it doesn't stop there. It continues on. Ladies, you're to submit, but husbands are to love. But here's the second thing. Point number five. In a marriage relationship, God commands husbands to not be harsh. And you think, why why the second command there? Well, it's very simple. It's this. In many translations, it says, and do not be bitter against them. If you've been in any sort of relationship at all, there's been some water under the bridge, all right? There have been words that have been said that should not have been said. There have been things done that should have never been done. And it's really easy to keep a record of wrongs, to bring that up every time, especially if it's continual, especially if it's a weakness, So you have to not allow those continual sins sometimes to embitter you. There is a path forward when either side is sinning against one another. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 18, take the plank out of your own eye first before you seek to take the speck out of someone else's. Go to that person one-on-one, and if they refuse to repent, two-on-one, three-on-one, the whole church if necessary. There is a pattern forward with dealing with sin, but the pattern or the path forward is not bitterness that grows to the point that you're harsh with one another. Guys, you can't do that. You cannot do that. We're, according to 1 Peter, live with our wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that our prayers may not be hindered. Here's the crazy thing. Our horizontal relationships can impact our vertical relationship with the Father. If you grow embittered, you will not pray like he once prayed. It's almost impossible to praise the Lord while you're bitter at your wife. 
or your children or anyone else. It just doesn't work. They're heirs with the grace of life. So here's the simple solution, guys. If you have a wife that's struggling, that continues to sin against you or others, it's called grace. Just as Christ continues to extend grace to us in the church, we're to extend grace to our wives. It's that grace that overcomes bitterness. Grace isn't a blanket license for sin. And it is not even forgiveness. We're to forgive as the Lord forgives. The Lord doesn't give blanket forgiveness. We must repent and confess our sins, and then he forgives. Grace is just an acknowledgement, as the scripture said, of weakness. We're frail vessels, and the wives, according to scripture, are, are the weaker of the vessels. Extend grace, husbands. Grace upon grace upon grace. And that is how a marriage reflects the glory of a Lord who came and died for us, that we might not only be saved, but that we'd be sanctified, conformed to his image. Husbands, if you hear nothing else, we'll close with this. Your role as a husband is to conform your wife to the image of Christ. Not you, not your ideal image of what a wife ought to be. No, it's simply Christ. How do you do that? Starts with love and grace. Love your wives. Then proceeds to the word of God, setting your, your ego aside, and loving your wife with the word of God, washing it, washing her with it. She might not respond favorably, but wives, if you're sitting here today, I would encourage you. What kind of husband do you want? Do you want the guy that you have now, just older and grumpier 50 years from now? Or, or do you want a guy that's trying at least to lead you in the Lord? That's, a, that's an awesome husband. If this isn't guaranteeing that he's sin-free or he's perfect or any of that. It's just simply a trajectory. Which way are you going in your marriage? Are you splitting apart because of bitterness, anger, and fighting, and lack of submission, lack of leadership? Or are you both coming together, seeking Christ? I pray it's the latter. We want to be a church that encourages you in that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Uh, please forgive me for my failure in leadership in my marriage. Lord, I, I pray first and foremost for the men of this church that are married. Those that aren't, that they would prepare their hearts and their minds and their lives to be good husbands if, if that's what they choose, Lord. Help us to be bold enough and brave enough to begin to model Christ in our own families, in our own households. Help us to hide God's word in our heart, not to be arrogant, self-serving, someone who keeps a record of wrongs, but full of grace and truth. 
Lord, I, I pray for our wives as well, that in their hearts that they can find the grace to humble themselves before you and seeking you, they submit to their husband's leadership in you. Lord, help them to navigate those waters, especially if they have poor leadership. Trying to figure out how to be a good follower is so challenging. Lord, I thank you for this body. I thank you for their desire to simply open up your word and seek you in every area of their life. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.